Welcome back to Building Better Basketball Season 2, the Basketball Australia Coaches Podcast. Today's episode is another one as a result of some of your questions we've received. A lot of you reached out and said we'd love to know more about athlete conditioning, strength and fitness, and what you can do at your level. So I hit up my little black book, and it's my absolute pleasure to have Brent Gorris on the podcast. Brent has an honours degree in exercise science, is a full-time exercise physiologist and strength and conditioning coach. You might have seen Brent's face on your TV and wondered who he was as he rolls with the Tansville Fire, Heat, Flames, and the Australian Opals. Brent's the brother, brother of Paul Gorris, one of the current assistants of the Australian Opals as well. Having seen firsthand the work that Brent puts in with the Opals group, I'm really excited we've been able to grab a window in his busy schedule to pick his brain about creating and maintaining a body for basketball success. Welcome to Building Better Basketball, Brent. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for having me. Uh, pleasure to be here talking about stuff that I absolutely love. Can you tell us a little bit about your role with the Opals, Brent, how you ended up there? And obviously, it would be remiss of us not to touch on the, the great success of the recent World Cup. Yeah, so my role is the uh, strength and conditioning coach with the Opals, also uh, involved with the recovery as well. So I guess how I got here, uh, I've been in the industry now for coming up to 23 years. So I finished my uh, Bachelor of Sport and Exercise Science back in 2002, did my honours in biomechanics with the Australian women's cricket team. From there, I've pretty much had every role that you can think of in the fitness industry, from personal trainer, uh, corporate health, exercise physiologist uh, to my role now, which is uh, having a business set up in Townsville and also being a strength and conditioning coach. I guess my uh, career with as a strength and conditioning coach started back in 2003, 2004, when I was involved with uh, the Townsville Fire. And that sort of just instilled my passion. I already had a background with basketball uh, as uh, a player as a referee, I, I refereed in the state championships uh, and as a coach as well, coaching junior teams. Uh, and then I, now ultimately as a strength and conditioning coach. So in my time, I guess, as an SNC coach from 2003, 2004, I've been involved with the Townsville Fire, um, of which I'm the current SNC coach and head of high performance there. Uh, the Townsville Crocodiles in their last year in the, uh, in the NBL back in 2015 as their SNC coach through the NBL one teams, the Townsville Heat and Townsville Fames, and also doing some work with the National Performance Program in Queensland Academy of Sport. Uh, I guess in terms of um, being in the industry and my first gig as an SNC coach, like I've had a, a number of great mentors and I think being involved with basketball from a, a very early age and having, the again, the experience and that as an athlete, it's just taught me the movement patterns and the strengths and what to look for with particular athletes in, in training those particular athletes. And I think it's something at the community level that uh, even basketball coaches who don't have a degree or much knowledge in the strength and conditioning field can do their own research uh, that can jump on. And obviously you don't want to believe everything that you read or you, or you hear, but at the same time form uh, an educated opinion as to, okay, well, this athlete needs to be faster or this athlete needs to be uh, more powerful or this athlete here needs to focus on some other dimension of strength and conditioning that you as an ed educated basketball-specific coach can get your head around and even feed off other coaches as well that might be uh, in the same profession or you might have a, a friend that you can reach out to as a personal trainer or as an SNC coach or someone in the, in the fitness industry that can give you some guidance along the way. So 
Um, I guess in terms of the, the Opals gig, um, I was approached about the Opals SSC role back in, um, I think it was late 2000, uh, 2020, um, obviously leading into preparations for the Tokyo Olympics and then the World Cup in 2022. Uh, it was an absolute no-brainer that uh, I was going to apply for the position. And when I got the position, I was uh, absolutely ecstatic. It's one of those roles that uh, I, I've set myself goals every year since I've sort of had my degree and I've been in the industry and this was definitely one that I, I, I can tick off the list now. Jumping in head first, obviously at the end of uh, the World Cup leading into a bronze medal, um, playing eight games in 10 days was absolutely brutal and, and uh, really intense. But I guess in, in terms of the whole team itself, the athletes, the, the sports science, sports medicine staff and the coaching staff, everyone got together. It was one of the, I guess, best cultures I, I've been involved with. Uh, again, culminating in a bronze medal, which was fantastic. You touched on um, in, in what you just said there. SNC is obviously one of those things that the average community basketball coach isn't by default going to incorporate into their training. Some of it through ignorance and a lot of it is through lack of knowledge and um, I guess a fear of doing something wrong rather than just not believing and needing to be um, strength or, or conditioned. What is one of the biggest misconceptions you think there is about um, strength and conditioning in community basketball, Brent? Um, there's probably a list as long as my arm as to why coaches and athletes alike at a community level don't put a lot of or if any emphasis on SNC. I think the lack of application of SNC systems at a community level comes down to poor knowledge on the coach's behalf, which just stems back from a lack of education about the benefits of a structured and suitable program for the athlete. Uh, I know when I was growing up in my early teenage years, it was my own personal interest uh, in weight training and sub subsequently plyometrics and power-based work that I did some own research of my own back and started trying different training methods and modalities. Um, and this was back in the late 80s, uh, showing my age there. Uh, so the knowledge and availability of specialist coaches back then is completely different to what's uh, available to athletes in this day and age. I guess the biggest misconception uh, that I still hear today, and this is this doesn't discriminate between young adolescent amateur athletes to professional ballers, would be that strength training, and this is only one of the misconceptions, but probably one of the bigger ones, uh, is going to make me slower. It's going to make my athlete slower and also affect my shot, or it's also going to affect my athlete's shot. I literally had this comment from a pro baller just last week. Uh, and it just baffles me. So my answer was to them, why? Like, tell me why it's going to slow you down and why it's going to change the biomechanics of your shot. Uh, and then after their answer, whether, whether it was legitimate or not, I then proceeded to educate them about the positives of a holistic S&C program, which far outweighs any negative aspects. Um, I said, do you want to run faster, be more agile? Do you want to be able to jump higher? Uh, do you want to be more explosive? Do you want to be able to defend and hold your position against a bigger opponent? Uh, do you want to be able to finish your layup with contact and maintain body position and body posture? And funnily enough, all these boxes are ticked and that's when you win the trust of the athlete and their willingness to commence a suitable SSC program. So being there and doing that from an athlete perspective, I played basketball from a very young age up until I was about 18, 19, I think when I started to focus on education a bit more. I was a skinny, scrawny, teenager pushing about five foot seven which i'm about five foot seven right now 
I needed to be physically stronger for my size and build up strength and also focus on my strengths, which were agility and speed. But when I was 17, I still vividly remember to this day, one of the biggest things that most basketball ballers want to do is dunk the ball. And I thought five foot seven, I know I've got pretty good fast twitch muscle fibers. Is it ever going to be possible? I knew I could jump high, but I didn't think dunking the ball was going to be a possibility. Anyway, again, going back to doing my own research, studied plyometric training, studied power training. I just started in the gym as well. And thought, you know what, I'm going to give this a good crack. Anyway, every second day I would go home from school. We lived in a small unit. I'd grab a set of old rusty dumbbells. I would do a whole uh, myriad of plyometric drills, tuck jumps, squat jumps. I would uh, grab my, my rusty plate weights, jump over mum's ironing basket, which was actually quite high at the time. Literally six months later, I was dunking the basketball at five foot seven. So that lasted for about 12 months, but it just shows you to prove, it just proves that if you've got the desire to do something, if you've got the physical capacity to do something and you train specifically for it, you're going to achieve the highest outcomes because of it. Okay, But you need to obviously incorporate a suitable s program. And I can tell you now, if I didn't do that plyometric work, there's no way I could have dunked the basketball. So it's just, I guess, my own research leading into the knowledge I have today to just show people that, hey, this is possible through a structured SNC program. So those misconceptions of it's going to make me slower, it's going to change my shot. Okay, prove to me why. And then if you can prove to me why with a legitimate reason, then I'll listen to you. Otherwise, just give me a chance and I'll show you how doing a specific strength and conditioning program can help you not only physically, but also your performance on court. Friend, that's awesome. And as someone that is also a sub six footer, it does fill me with uh, with hope. I think at nearly 40 years old, I think my days of plyometrics are past, but a boy can dream. Um, I've seen you firsthand with the Opals, um, Brent, and know how um, you're you're not out there on an island by yourself as the, the strength and conditioning coach. Can you tell us a little bit about how your role works in with the other coaches and also about how you coach the players as well, because for many at that level, they'll be so focused when they reach the um, opals about performing on the court that the off-court work might not be front of mind for them. And it also might be different for them, depending on, on where they've come from around the country. Certainly. So everyone's an individual. Athletes come from different backgrounds. Some athletes are introduced to strength conditioning, so weightlifting, for example, from a very early age, and then some are introduced a lot later on. Some of them like it, some of them dislike it. So it's just a matter of finding out what people's likes and dislikes are with regards to that as well. So my main role with the Opal specifically is to develop periodized plans and training programs for any squad members that aren't guided by any other SNC coaches, wherever they may be at that point in time. So obviously we have athletes in the WNBA, WNBL, also Europe. Uh, so the amount of support each athlete receives may be quite diverse depending on their situation and the time of season. So for those that have SNC coaches, my role is to liaise with that particular coach to establish training frequency methods uh, and desired outcomes and also to ensure that if the athlete is reaching key training loads leading into whether we're having camps or tournaments. So because of our athletes spread across Australia and across the world in different leagues, and they have a diverse, I guess, training schedule and game schedule. One of my main roles throughout the year is to 
track training loads to ensure that the athlete is receiving enough training stimulus to get performance outcomes and also to make sure that they're also not overtraining. So currently in Australia, we use uh, the AIA, uh, athlete management system through the AIS, which requires the athlete to enter data like the duration of the training session and how hard the training session was. And this goes back then ties in with the coaching staff and also the triple SM cells, the sports science, sports medicine staff that we can sort of get together on a Zoom or a round table, discuss exactly what athletes are doing or what they're not doing, where they need to uh, get more work facilitated, whether it be in the gym, whether it be off feet conditioning, whether it be a bit more work on court. And that's pretty much how we liaise as a uh, coaching team and as a uh, triple SM team within the Opal. So it's, quite tough because we're we're all working remotely obviously all the coaches are scattered across australia and the us uh the triple sm staff we've got a team doctor in canberra we've got uh one physio in sydney another physio in, in uh, brisbane myself here in townsville so it's just maintaining that open communication that if something pops up with an athlete that they need to be serviced by a physiotherapist somewhere else or something needs to happen with regards to their treatment or whether they need to change their program up in the gym because of uh, a niggle or, or an injury that everybody's across the board with it. Brent, what are some of the things you've touched on some of the fantastic work that, that you guys are doing um, at the kind of top level? What do you think some of the simple things that a community coach could integrate into their programs to, to lift the S&C standards and strengths of their team? Um, I guess it really depends on the level and the age of the athlete, I guess probably more so the level of where the actual athlete is at that point in time. One of the most fundamental components of SNC is applying the appropriate type of training that relates to the athlete's training age as opposed to the chronological age. And I think this is something that as a community basketball specific coach, you may sort of get caught up on from time to time. So we often see this assumed when the athlete has the ability to do a task purely based on their age and no consideration as to the training background that they actually have. So you might get an 18 year old with a training age of zero. So they've literally done no structured, consistent strength and conditioning work. However, you might have a 13 year old who has a training age of three because they've been doing the foundation stuff, squatting, deadlifting, albeit just with very, very light weight, um, push-ups, body weight rowing exercises all that sort of stuff so therefore the 13 year old is actually three years ahead of the 18 year old in terms of training age so the 13 year old may have the core and upper body strength to be able to do push-ups where the 18 year old may not athletes need to i guess earn the right to progress so therefore the younger athlete in this instance may progress on the more physically and biomechanically challenging exercises than the older athlete so in terms of does this give the younger athlete an advantage it certainly does when this athlete eventually turns 18 the 13 year old if they've been training consistently over that period of time when they turn 18 they've got now a training age of eight years which is placing that that uh that athlete well and truly in advance of an 18 year old or a 17 year old with only one or two years of training experience i guess back to the question though from a community standpoint um where a club may not have access to a qualified or experienced SNC coach and relies on the basketball coach to facilitate this. Then from a very basic standpoint, integrating simple things such as bodyweight exercises, so squats, push-ups, lunges, 
complaints will all have benefits to assist the athlete, not only to improve themselves physically, but also to improve performance outcomes on court. The ability to change direction, the ability to move quicker laterally, the ability to jump higher, just that sequential movement through the lower body and the upper body. Also, improving core strength is going to go a very, very long way. And that's the commencement of the foundation types of exercises that set the athlete up for a progression in the future. Um, where for my athletes, they need to earn the right to progress to use external weight. If I get a 18-year-old through the door and they literally can't do a push-up because of poor upper body strength or poor core strength, there's no way I'm throwing them on a bench press or there's no way I'm throwing them on a dumbbell press with weights. They need to prove to me they're doing the foundation work to be able to progress onto that first and foremost. So I guess back to the question, what can the community coach do? I guess that first and foremost, they need to establish what their athlete is capable of so that might take a couple of those like simple basic screening tests, determine where the athlete is, and then progressively increase the type of exercise they're doing and the intensity in which they're doing it at over time. So I guess it really comes back to the training age as opposed to the chronological age. And most basketball coaches at the community level are probably quite familiar with their athletes as well and uh, know exactly what they're capable of, which makes it a little bit easier. That's so. Uh... Fantastic answer, Brent. Like so much like stuff in there that people obviously in most aspects of basketball, not just S and C, um, always air to running before they can walk. And I think it's a really good reminder of people to just can you actually do the basics well with strength and with consistency before you, you move on as well. And I do encourage anyone that's that's interested, the the training age is a really interesting concept from a coach development point of view to, to read about, again, not just from an SNC perspective, but from an athlete learning perspective, it, it's really beneficial. Um, Brent, you, I, I was, the first time I met you was when I was involved with the, the Opals in the Japan series. And obviously that was a really tight window in terms of game, game, rest day, game. And then you touched on in your, um, in your first answer about how the World Cup was that to another level and another level of competition that really highlights the importance of um, warm-ups and cool downs and again at community level with limited court time and contact time that might get overlooked can you just um, give us an expert take I suppose on the importance of warm-ups and cool downs and a couple of I suppose non-negotiables for you around them yeah perfect um, as you know and as you've alluded to like I place a lot of emphasis on the warm-up in terms of a community level, again, you may not have enough time to do an extensive warm-up, but it doesn't really need to be extensive in the first instance, as long as you're ticking a couple of boxes to satisfy what you need to get the athlete prepared. Once tip-off occurs that they're ready to go, then you've done your job. So for any of the teams I take care of, our warm-up starts as a group approximately 50 minutes before tip-off, which is a long, long time. Um, at a community level, obviously, it's going to be a lot shorter than that because athletes may not even be there ready for the game 15 minutes prior. So I take care of our warm-up. Our warm-up starts as a group. Uh, we go through five to seven minutes of balance, activation, and postural stability work, which is just some basic activation-type stuff that gets the athlete ready to go. It's activating the muscles they're about to use. And this is like the movement preparation for the movement preparation. So this is like the warm-up before the actual warm-up. Key things to take out of that is to obviously start really, really slow. You want to make sure that the athletes are 
increasing the range of motion of the joints that are about to use. So hips, knees, shoulders, trunk and torso. They're trying to warm up all the muscles around those particular joints. So obviously in a basketball game, your calves, your quads, your glutes are a big one. So if you can activate all those muscles initially before you actually go through the pregame work. And again, we're talking about five minutes of actual work time here. So it doesn't take long. So for me, the warm-up serves for two main purposes. Firstly, to reduce the possibility of any soft tissue, tissue injury and to get the athlete physically prepared for the game. But it's also the mental side of it as well. So if you're mentally aroused at that perfect point that as soon as you hit tip off, you're ready to go, you've done your job as a coach that you've got your athletes in the right position to get ready to go. So for us, we'll do that balanced postural stability stuff first, which is about five minutes. Following this, then they go and talk to the, the head coach for about 10 minutes, which then they go over, I guess, any specifics of scouting, um, the, the starting five, who their matchups are, et cetera. And then they come out on court with me to do their movement preparation before they get, their ball, uh, get the ball in their hands. So the movement preparation for me, uh, involves basic stuff that all the community coaches would generally know. So slow run-throughs, walking slide, uh, side, reverse lunges with different movements of the upper body to involve some, some trunk work, uh, high knees, butt kicks, some resistance band work, some vestibular exercises for change of direction, single leg hops for ankle proprioception, drills that involve the athlete being uh, having to communicate with the rest of the teammates as if they're in the game situation, calling screens, all that sort of stuff. Finally, culminating in some contact work. So with basketball is obviously a, a contact sport. So the end of end of the warm up for me is having some sort of drill where there's contact between uh, multiple players, and it could be in a sort of like a, a game type situation, just so that when you've got the tip off. You're ready to go. So if you if you if you're smacked by a, an opposing player, you're actually physically ready to absorb that contact. You can give some of that contact back, and you're ready to go again, as opposed to not having any contact in the warm up whatsoever. So I guess for me, as a warm up, a couple of key take home ideas that you would want to incorporate uh, into any warm up at a community level would be develop a warm up protocol that's obviously time efficient but also effective. Uh, for me, if you can sort of develop a warm-up without the ball, that's going to uh, take about 10 minutes. I think that's okay. I think that's going to be efficient enough. Start slow and progressively increase the range of motion intensity. So don't get out of the court and expect the athletes to do sprints straight away. Activate the muscles first. Go through different ranges of motion at the different joints and then progressively build from there. Practice the warm-up protocol beforehand during practice so the athletes know exactly what the drills are and what they're about to do. And don't change it up too often, all right? if any. If the athletes know exactly what to do, they're going to be engaged. They can pretty much facilitate it themselves and, uh, and, and really focus on doing the drills rather than concentrating too much. Make the warm-up engaging, as I said before, and deliver it with enthusiasm. So... You're going to get immediate buy-in if you do it that way. If you're the coach facilitating the warm-up, you are going to get buy-in straight away if you're enthusiastic about it. So the way in which you deliver the warm-up, same as the way in which you deliver a basketball-specific practice. If you've got a change in tone of voice, change in volume of voice, and you really motivate the athlete to progressively increase the intensity to the point where you're hitting drills at game intensity by the end of the warm-up, the athletes will buy in and work hard.
And then with the cool down, Brent, I know it was the LJ's favorite part of the World Cup was always the cool down. Yeah. So with regards to the cool down, I think educate the athletes why it's important in order to get the cool down done. And then again, you'll get that, that buy-in. Uh, I guess it's harder on those games where you have a loss and your head's down and it's always hard to go over there and go through your stretches. It's easier when you've had a win and you're on a bit of a high to actually go and get your cool down done. But regardless of whether you win or lose, I think it's one of the most crucial parts of post game uh, to ensure that you back up, especially in tournament play where you might have a game the next day or in two days time, just so you start that recovery process straight away. So um, for me, athletes, can then be directed to ice bars or contrast showers if need be. But the first point of contact, as soon as they finish uh, the game, would be to get them off, do a group stretch. And again, this can be facilitated by a coach or you might have a team captain and go, hey, go and do a bit of research or I can help you out with this. I want you to come up with four or five stretches that we consistently do after the game as a group to make sure that we're starting the recovery process right there and then. Obviously, there are a million other recovery modalities that you could choose as well. Ice bars, contrast showers, nutrition, hydration, leg drains, all that sort of stuff. But I think where the coach actually has access to the athlete, which is straight after the game, you don't know what they're doing when they go home. So if you've got access to them straight after the game, something simple as leg drains. So lying against the wall with your legs up the wall, also a really good time for the athlete to reflect as well. So Get rid of all devices, stay for your phones, have no contact with the person next to you and just reflect on the game. Reflect about things that were positive and reflect about things that you could improve on. And it's just a good time to, uh, I guess, have some silent time rather than jumping on a, a mobile phone straight away and texting your mate or jumping on social media. Brent, you've got a unique um, perspective that many of our other guests wouldn't have had where they've traditionally been a coach of of one gender team for the majority of the career, either male or female. You've got experience in both male and female programs at, at Townsville, Brent. Is there a difference between what you do for the guys versus what you do for the girls, or is it just athlete as an athlete? Um, obviously, there's gender disparities between male and female athletes, especially through growth and maturation years. So the whole topic. That whole topic, I guess we could sit down and talk for, for ages about. Uh, but I guess putting those things aside, for me, for my athletes, I screen them, I test them, and then I train all my athletes depending on what presents itself during the whole screening and testing process, regardless of whether they're male and female. So in the consultation with the athlete as well, it's always good to pick up what they believe their strengths and weaknesses are. But in terms of training males and females, again, I've trained um, males and females as young as 12 years of age that have been high-level basketballers right up until, uh, obviously, pro athletes. And I guess the biggest thing is just treating everybody as an individual. Uh, obviously, males have their strengths compared to females. Females recover a lot quicker than males do in the gym. So both have their strengths and weaknesses. But for me, I guess it's just treating the person as an individual as opposed to any gender disparities and finding out uh, from them how they like to be trained, what their likes and dislikes are, what I find in the screening process for the testing process and what needs to be worked on. Um, I guess from a physical perspective, establishing where the athlete fits in the continuum of long-term athlete development determines the program design. So regardless of whether they're female or male, what is their training age? Uh, and then secondly, getting to know the personality and traits of the athlete 
and building great rapport so you'll be able to work with the athletes as opposed to working against the athletes. Brent, last question. It's the question we ask everyone that comes on the podcast. If you could ask one coach of any sport, and they can be um, alive or, or dead, a question, who would the coach be and what would the question be? Uh, that's a tough one. I think, uh, I guess, being a, uh, a late 70s child, I grew up with the Chicago Bulls and that was my favourite team for a long, long time. Uh, loved Jordan, loved Dennis Rodman, loved Scottie Pippen. So my question probably would be to Phil Jackson and I would ask him a whole heap of questions, but I would just ask him to tell me as many stories he had over the time with such big personalities in the team, uh, how they... I guess, worked around those personalities from the time that Dennis Rodman went off to Vegas and disappeared for uh, quite some time. I'd just be interested to know how they approached that, but also just I'd be interested to see uh, what uh, what stories they had from that from that era. Yeah, there would be, uh, if there was ever a tell-all, it would be fascinating, that's for sure. Brent, thank you so much for your time today. That's um, been a fantastic uh benefit and I think it will be one that uh, community coaches will be um, re-listening to with a, a pen and paper in front of them. Just want to wish you all the very best for um, the upcoming season, all your work that continues with the Opals and um, yeah, thank you so much for your time today and hopefully now people will um, be able to put a uh, face to the name when they uh, see you on the sidelines on the TV coverage. Thanks, mate. Appreciate being on here and uh, appreciate you having me on.